Now the story of Jesus' ministry begins in the Galilee in the northern part of the country. At first, I don't know if you can see that too well on the map, but that's a map of Israel. And the little black bit down the bottom is the Dead Sea. To the west of that's Jerusalem. And further towards the top of the screen, there's another little black-blue bit, which is the Sea of Galilee. Now, at first, Jesus taught around the town of Capernaum on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And during this time, we see Jesus healing people of all manner of diseases and afflictions. He also reveals his power over the evil spirits and he casts out demons and he even raises a synagogue that ruler's daughter from the dead. We see him feeding a huge crowd of people with only a few loaves of bread and a few fishes. A few fish, <laughs> get the plural right. And we see him exercising his power over the forces of nature by commanding a storm to cease and by walking on the water. And it's interesting that Jesus spent much of his time travelling around the Galilee region because we kind of think he spent most of his time around Jerusalem, but not so. Most, two of the three years of his ministry is around the Galilee. Mark records that he travelled as far as the area around Tyre and Sidon on the Mediterranean coast, way to the east, towards the top of the screen there. These were Gentile or non-Jewish places, and they were heavily influenced by Greek and Roman culture and practices, and worship practices in particular. Now, it may have been safer for Jesus at this stage to stay in these areas because, as we've seen very early in Mark's Gospel, the Pharisees and the Jewish rulers were offended by Jesus' teaching. They saw him as a threat to their position and status within the Jewish community. And by this time, they were looking for a way to kill him and to do this legitimately by accusing him of some capital offence. And as we've seen, Jesus also took with him a group of men, his 12 closest disciples, who were ordinary men from ordinary walks of life, who he chose to be first-hand witnesses of all he did and all he taught. Now, towards the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, we see Mark's account reach a climax and a turning point, a pivot point in the Gospel. Up to this time, aspects of Jesus' character, his authority, his power, have been progressively revealed. And we're in the fortunate position of knowing how it all turns out. But the disciples, as we've seen in the video, were struggling to understand just who he is. And although they themselves have been out preaching repentance and delivering people from demons and healing the sick, they still struggled to understand who this man was. And despite Jesus teaching despite Jesus teaching nothing seemed to fit their preconceived ideas about the great Messiah they were hoping and expecting. So really was Jesus just another of the great prophets, a miracle worker, a man of God who had incredible understanding and knowledge of the law and the ways of God. Well, in chapter 8, verse 22, we see Jesus and the disciples coming to the town of Bethsaida, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's zoomed in on the Sea of Galilee. and just imagine the north side of that little town, Bethsaida, where Jesus heals a blind man. 
And Michelle shared something about that a bit earlier on. But from Bethsaida, they journey northwards about 40 kilometres to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now this was the capital city of Herod Philip. He was the tetrarch or ruler of that particular region. And he was the son of Herod the Great, one of the several sons of Herod the Great. Caesarea Philippi was actually near one of the source, one of the three sources of the River Jordan. Originally, it was called Panius, in honour of the Greek god Pan. And the Greek god Pan was uh, sort of a god of nature and mountains and things like that. And there was a shrine located there at Caesarea Philippi. Um, and uh, we can see the remains of that today and see how we go. Yep. It's a, it's a pretty place. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, Kathy and I visited there a few years ago. It's part of a national park now. It has cool running water. Uh, you can drink it. It flows out of a natural spring. It's a bit like, if you can picture Audley in the Royal National Park, it's a bit like that. And you can walk up to the grotto where the remains of the shrine to Pan can be seen. It's quite a spiritual kind of place in some ways. But there are also the remains of other shrines. And, uh, and you can see the remains of statues and temples to other Greek and Roman gods. And that's just a present-day picture of that area, the, the grottoes to the uh, left of it. And there's all these little remains of temples and shrines going up the pathway. Now it was here. You can picture the place surrounded by the statues and the idols of paganism, that Jesus asked his disciples this very telling question, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am, he asked them. Now their answers reflected their uncertainty about Jesus' true identity. They said some people thought Jesus was John the Baptist, risen from the dead after Herod had, uh, had, had, had him executed a short time before. Others thought Jesus was the prophet Elijah who had returned to continue the work of calling people to repentance. If you remember in the Old Testament, miracles also characterised Elijah's ministry. So perhaps there was a reason to believe that he was Elijah. Still other people felt that Jesus was another in a long line of prophets sent to the people of Israel. And on reflection... All these are quite reasonable answers. But then Jesus asked him another question. But who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? It was actually putting them on the spot. If someone said to you, who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? Who do you say he is? The disciples had to answer that question for themselves. For Peter... It was one of those light bulb moments. Peter answered, You are the Messiah. The pieces of the puzzle were finally coming together for the disciples. There was certainly evidence that Jesus commanded a great deal of authority. He demonstrated in his teaching an amazing degree of understanding of the will and purposes of God as revealed in the Scriptures. He exhibited supernatural powers in ways not seen since the time of Moses and Elijah. But did they really understand the true nature and purpose of the Messiah? 
passage goes on, tells us that Jesus then began to speak plainly to them about what was to happen to him. He would suffer many things and he would be rejected by the authorities and finally he would be killed. The disciples could certainly understand this. Things were getting dangerous for Jesus, particularly in the south towards Jerusalem. But they did not want to accept what they were hearing. This was certainly not where they thought things should be heading. And then Jesus makes a statement that didn't stack up in their minds at all. He said he would rise from the dead three days after he was killed. Just reflect back to the video. These guys are being challenged in their thinking in all kinds of ways. And here's Jesus saying he's going to be killed. And not only that, he will rise from the dead three days later. Woo! It's no wonder they couldn't get it or understand it. And Peter was certainly stunned by this as we see in the passage. He pulls Jesus aside basically to say, hey, Jesus, you're crazy. You're mad for even thinking about such a possibility. It just doesn't compute. But Jesus turned and faced firstly Peter and then to the rest of the disciples. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. And then to the disciples as a whole group, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Harsh words. But Jesus was trying to get through to them that he was obedient to God's will and purposes. This was God's plan of salvation for the whole of humanity. And it went against everything that people thought the Messiah could and should be. You see, God was more concerned with establishing the kingdom of heaven rather than establishing some kind of political kingdom on earth. Jesus knew this. So he called his disciples and the wider crowd to him and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Notice this is before Jesus was crucified. And a person carrying a cross in those times, it meant that they were on their way to a place of execution. Their life was forfeit. It was like they were dead man walking. They would suffer terribly and then they would die. There was nothing left for a person who was carrying their cross, nothing left for them in this life. What did this mean for the disciples? And more particularly, what does it mean for us? Jesus was saying that if you want to be his disciple, it means total and utter surrender to him. Your life and your aspirations are finished. For us and for, our, and for the disciples... What it means is that we need to place ourselves under his will and his authority. We need to submit to his authority. We are to submit our lives to him. In other words, we become obedient to his will and his purposes for our lives. And we are called to follow him on a journey through life that may involve 
temptation. It may involve suffering for his sake. Let me tell you plainly, being a Christian believer is no easy road. We're not promised that. But we are called to grow in our relationship with Jesus by not just learning about him, gaining head knowledge, but in allowing him to walk through the ups and downs of life with us by trusting his promises to us. And no matter what we face in this life, we are called to put Jesus first and foremost and to seek his direction and purposes for our lives. And you know, basically we do this through reading and meditating on scripture and through prayer and through listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes on to say in Mark 8, 36 to 37, what good is it for any someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. You know, we can read these familiar words and nod our heads in agreement. But how many people sacrifice their souls in the pursuit of material or financial gain or an academic or or career advancement. Things like pleasure, travel, sport, and even our families consume so much of us that there is little left to nurture our spiritual growth. The warning here is clear. Watch out for the passions of the, on, in your life, the passions of life, the passions in your life. Watch out that they, these things do not squeeze out your relationship with Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 3.2, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Which expands in Philippians 4.8-9, which Tom actually shared earlier on. So I think this verse needs to be shared this morning. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. And whatever you have learned or received from me, this is Paul writing in Philippians 4, whatever you have learned or received from me or seen in me, put into practice. When we do these things, we are putting on the mind of Christ. And then we have... In, the, in, in mind the concerns of God and not merely human concerns as Jesus was trying to point out here. Well, returning to our passage in chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus concludes his talk with the disciples with a prophecy by saying, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. We have no trouble understanding this as a reference to the events of the crucifixion and resurrection. But I imagine this statement would have continued to feed the disciples' messianic preconceptions of Jesus leading a great rebellion against the Roman Empire. You see, they still didn't get it. 
And so as if to build the picture of who he really is and to reinforce what he has been saying, six days later, Jesus takes his closest disciples, Peter, James and John, up a high mountain. This is most likely Mount Hermon. That's a picture of Mount Hermon in Israel. It's just to the north of Caesarea Philippi. In fact, Caesarea Philippi lies basically at the base of Mount Hermon. Uh, It's often snow-covered in wintertime. It was a very high mountain, about 9,000 feet high. There, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking to Jesus. This was like confirming to the disciples that Jesus was in the same league as Moses, who had that special relationship with God and who gave the Israelite nation the law they regarded and prized so highly. And also Elijah, who represented the prophets of the Old Testament and whose life was characterised by signs and wonders and who also had a special relationship with God. But you know, Jesus was more than these two pillars of the Old Testament. Because then what happens? A cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from heaven saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now a cloud in the Old Testament usually signified the presence of God. So here we have God the Father affirming his love and affection for Jesus, his son. And his message to the disciples was simply, listen to him. And it was said emphatically, and it was as if to say, wake up you blockheads and take some notice of what Jesus is saying to you. Hear what he is really saying instead of filtering his words through the lens of your preconceptions. Filtering what he's saying through your beliefs about the way you think God should be working in your life and in the life of Israel. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Yes, there is a cost. Yes, there may be suffering and hardship. But this is the way of salvation, God's way of salvation. This is the way of discipleship. And you know, this is the way we mature as a Christian believer. Listen to the words of Jesus. Take notice of them. Let them filter through your life and obey them. Follow his example of godly, obedient living according to the will and purposes of God. It is only through obedience that we actually mature as Christians. And it's only through obedience that we'll experience the wonder of God working in our lives, that we'll experience his blessings and that we'll grow closer in our relationship with our Lord and Saviour. Three words I'd like you to take with me, but take with you this morning. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we often fill our lives with so many things that squeeze you out. Help us to understand just what you have done for us, for dying for us on the cross in our place, 
taking the punishment that we so richly deserve. Lord, we pray that we will listen to you, that we'll take notice of what you're saying to us, that we'll submit to your authority in our lives. We give ourselves to you because, Lord, we want to listen to you, to honour you and bring glory to you in every way possible. And in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.